Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Without objection, I include in the record a video presentation of the violence of January 6th. I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground. They were peaceful people. These were great people. I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we question all of our assumptions about culture, like that the January 6th hearings are a political event when they're also a highly produced and suspenseful and riveting cultural event and some of the best stuff on TV these days. Congress even brought in the former president of ABC News, James Goldstein, to help produce the hearings and bring the razzle-dazzle. Now, what you just heard were clips from the hearings and all the elements of story are here. Bullshit, blood, and dishonor. And maybe one day over the rainbow, there will be redemption. The hearings might even be working with the audience or they seem to have moved the needle for some people. In a recent ABC News Ipsos poll, 58% of those polled say Trump should be charged with a crime. My guest today is the perfect person to talk about storytelling in this context. He's Angus Fletcher, a professor of English and story science at The Ohio State University. I just met him in Philadelphia and I was initially resistant to his ideas and really over a long, long night of drinks came around to them. Angus Fletcher, welcome to This is Critical. I'm thrilled to be here, Virginia. So, Angus, today we are talking about the January 6th hearings and in particular how the hearings are using storytelling and stagecraft and showmanship even to make their case, their implicit case, I guess, that Donald Trump should be prosecuted for his role in January 6th. So tell us what even qualifies you to talk about this weird subject? I mean, basically, I started out in neuroscience and I just got obsessed with how it is the story works in the brain. And I thought that, you know, I would go study Shakespeare, do all this kind of stuff to kind of figure out more and more and more about that. And that's led me on this weird odyssey. You know, I've worked with people at Pixar and, and all over. 
And I've invented this new field called story science, in which we basically put people in brain scanners while they read narratives. It's amazing. Also, by the way, I can't help noticing that you think in stories, like you describe going on an odyssey, one of the most foundational stories in the West. And I really appreciate that about you. So what have you learned about narrative and storytelling in your own odyssey? So I guess some of the big things are the computers can't do it, which is why AI is never going to take over the world, that children do it from birth, which is why they're naturally incredibly imaginative, and that story is actually most of human intelligence. There's this myth that most of human intelligence is logic, but actually most of what we do as humans is we tell ourselves stories, plots, plans, guesses about the future, and then we test to see whether those work out or not. We spend most of our time in public sharing stories that allow us to kind of get to know each other, and that's why we have collective intelligence, because we're able to build these narratives that we can try and test together. So really, most of human intelligence is what we are often told is fiction or make-believe. Hmm, that's amazing. I mean, I do think of my two-year-old brother. My mother put a pie on the car once, like on top of the car while she was waiting to get in the car, and then got in the car, drove off, and the pie fell off. And my brother just took this in as a plot story with an awesome climax and a joke and surprises. And the way that he, with his limited vocabulary, told that story, probably for six months. And I was just a little older, but I just couldn't believe, you know, watching narrative take shape in a brain. Well, of course, that's the power of great stories is they just grip us. I mean, when something amazing happens in front of you, you just have to share with everybody. Oh, yeah. And it's this huge kind of bonding thing. And I have to be honest, most of what I get called in to do most of the time by companies is marketing. Because we have this idea that somehow if you could make the perfect story, you can control people's brains. Yes. And the thing that I'm most interested in is actually getting people to self-actualize by discovering their own stories and by kind of unlocking that power in themselves and that kind of like radical kind of democratic emancipatory power that, you know, you're brother discovered in the pie. <laughs> yeah. You still can't stop thinking about it, right? I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I'm going to remember that pie forever. <laughs> on the top of the car, falling off. I mean, just every part of it. So let's get to the committee's case. They've scheduled these high production value primetime hearings. Why do you think that is? Why did they bring in professional storytellers to try to do this in, in sound and image, right? It's like an AV presentation. Well, I mean, I think obviously the reason they've done it is because their previous attempts to make this case to the American public have not been that convincing. And they think that if they kind of up power their storytelling, they're going to hit that kind of marketing sweet spot like I was talking about earlier and somehow kind of brain control all of us into thinking the narrative that they've been telling us for, for really years now. I mean, do you not think there's truth to the story that they're telling? Surely you believe that the Capitol building was breached on January 6th and that people planned it in advance and that Trump had something to do with encouraging people to do it. Even if you think that there's some propaganda in this, a lot of it seems to me like just simply documenting a historical story. Well, I mean, first of all, Trump is a bulbous, felonious demagogue, and I certainly don't doubt that. And I certainly don't doubt that uh, that he would love to overthrow the U.S. Constitution and instantiates himself as a permanent tyrant. Nor do I doubt that there was this kind of huge um, mob action on January 6th. But I don't think that's really what the committee is after here, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the committee is trying to make the American people care about that more than the American public cares about inflation and gas prices and other things like that. I mean, it's basically a war of attention for narratives. The question with narratives isn't whether it's true or not, it's whether it matters. 
So mm -hmm. I can tell you a whole bunch of stories right now that are true, but you'd be like, well, those don't really matter to me, so I don't care, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think what the committee is trying to do is they're trying to break through and say, this really matters, and we want to change your behavior. We want to change the way you think. I think that's the challenge they're facing. Can they break through with this narrative? Not can they prove that it's true. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Although, uh, you know, I worry that you're opening up the possibility that if you're trying to tell a beautiful story or use rhetorical forms, that you're automatically being deceptive. And I'd be surprised if you think there's a there's such a bright line between truth and storytelling. Well, I'm going to be honest. Stories exist outside of truth, and so does democracy. I mean, stories and democracy are both biological tools that exist because they work. And truth is something like math. One plus one equals two. That's true. And so, you know, the way that democracies work is they're able to answer people's needs and desires mm -hmm. more effectively than other systems of government. And, you know, the idea behind a democracy is that you have all of these individual people who are spread out across the body politic, and each of them is sensitive in a different way to the immediate pressures of their environments. And they communicate those feelings back through their representatives up to government and say, this is what matters to me. The alternative to that is a platonic form of government, which is concerned with, say, justice or truth, where a group of philosopher kings say, well, you know, this is really the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And so my view of democracy is that ultimately narrative is important in democracies as a tool of transmitting what the public feels. And at this point, I think the public feels that inflation is a greater threat than Donald Trump. I think they realize that Donald Trump is actually not a real threat to democracy. And I think they realize that inflation is a real threat to their current economic standing. That's my assessment of the situation. Mm -hmm. We can talk specifically about why I think the hearings have not really raised that much public enthusiasm. I mean, initially they did. There was an initial kind of interest and that has kind of lapsed over time. And I think we can talk about how the story is told and the choices the committee has made in telling the story that I think kind of reveal why the American public is not as interested in mm -hmm. that story as they are in the kind of more basic narrative of prices are going up, I'm starting to panic about my my wallet. You and I uh, have some spirited disagreement on this. It, it, something what you're saying about inflation reminds me of Mark Zuckerberg's kind of terrible misunderstanding after the 2016 election of how stories work when he said he was asked, did Facebook play a role? And he said, I think that's a, quote, pretty crazy idea because people vote on their, quote, lived experience. As if there were lived experiences of things like inflation that were altogether apart from stories. You know, for instance, January 6th is about a story, namely, Donald Trump and his follower story that gets called the big lie about how the election was stolen from Donald Trump. It's like January 6th is a way of kind of pulling apart a story. Okay, well, I see what you're doing. So let me just back up and say <laughs> one thing before I go into that, which is that yeah. you can think that Donald Trump is a criminal, as I do, without thinking that he's a danger to democracy. You know, and you could say what he did was a crime without thinking that it's a big problem that we should focus on when there are other problems which are bigger. So in other words, something can be true without it being urgent. And that's kind of how I feel about Donald Trump saying, now you can disagree with me on that. I know a lot of people on the left will. Uh, as someone who is himself on the left, I get a lot of heat from my friends. But your other point about like deconstructing the, the narratives mm -hmm. around, you know, what Trump did on January 6th, 
Part of the complicated thing is there really is not a main narrative to deconstruct. There's just like a huge nest of these half-formed conspiracy theories that are all very bizarre and idiosyncratic and weird. And Trump himself doesn't even, he didn't even have a plan or a strategy other than as far as I can tell to apply some kind of pressure to Mike Pence. But beyond that, there wasn't really a kind of a clear plan or, or thought. So there doesn't need to be that much deconstruction because there isn't really very much there there. There wasn't a lot of thoughts. There wasn't a lot of planning. There wasn't a lot of strategy. There was just a kind of like diaspora of kind of like weird uh, individual impulses. Mm. I, that's why I don't believe it's a threat to democracy. I don't think that there's a coherence to the actual uprising. Mm. I might agree with you about the, quote, threat to democracy, and that might simply be a rhetorical trope. I mean, if I were going to tell the story, I would tell the story as the unlikely hero, Mike Pence, you know, who sort of rises from his Smithers-like role to stand up to his boss for the Republic. Pence isn't the only surprising hero. Literally every single Republican. Mm -hmm, Who filed back in, which is everyone. You know, and even the GOP Texas lunatics, you know, I know you saw the the news of their convention over the weekend. They passed a resolution that, in fact, the election was stolen. But then they decided that they could not condone the January 6th uprising. They decided that was too far. So I do think there is a bright line around this actual uprising that is unique in our period. And that's why I think that Trump... His guilt seems to me to be incontrovertible, but I think the American public is uninterested because they don't think that there's a danger there. We're going to take a break. When we come back, more on the storytelling being done at these hearings and what's going on with people believing stories that seem totally at odds with the evidence. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. We're back with Angus Fletcher, professor at The Ohio State University's English department and story scientist. You know, Angus, I actually love that we're risking going on a tangent with this because I think it's all relevant. You know, Donald Trump is an actual threat to democracy, not just January 6th, but I'm thinking of Lafayette Park where police and riot gear and military figures cleared Black Lives Matter protesters with batons and tear gas. And, you know, that was a moment that struck many of us as as quite terrifying. Uh, You had Mark Milley dressed in camouflage, um, an army general walking through the park on behalf of Donald Trump and presumably his reelection. And that really signaled to me that this is not good. Well, I know Milley not that well, but I can tell you he was pretty embarrassed by that. And I think the military in general has been very embarrassed by the Trump administration. And I think that they have had a long history of wanting to go along with whatever the commander in chief tells them as part of their being nonpartisan. And I think that has walked them into a trap. Absolutely. But, you know, even if we understood that Milley was barely going along with it just because it was the commander-in-chief and same with Barr and same with everyone at Lafayette Park, it was a story they were telling and it was a persuasive story for the time. And it wasn't unimaginable that Trump, who had already called out 
you know, cops on the anarchist jurisdiction of New York City and Portland, Oregon, was going to pull in the army. I mean, we are telling competing stories, um, but I don't think that there's no reason to fear that Trump represented an actual threat to democracy. I mean, I think if Trump were a different person, he could be a threat to democracy. But I mean, I just, I feel the thing with Trump is that he is not smart enough, nor does he have enough support in kind of Republican circles to turn himself into an autocrat or a dictator because everyone sees that if he were in charge of the government, it would be a disaster. So there's not really a chance of a banana republic emerging, nor are we in a state of crisis that would allow a kind of demagogue to take over. I mean, the economy, despite the fact that it's not great, is relatively healthy. So they're just the conditions aren't really there. The main thing to go back to this question of the hearings themselves is what the hearings themselves are trying to accomplish, and maybe you have a deeper sense of this than I do, but my sense watching them is that they're trying to tell a story about how Donald Trump put American democracy under threat and how it's necessary to to kind of expose that prosecute him and put an end to that, even if that means in certain cases, such as, you know, Liz Cheney, damaging their own political career. So Mm. it seems to me that that is the sense of a kind of like heroic sacrifice, do the right thing. That seems to me that the story they're trying to tell. Mm hmm. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful analysis by my former professor, James Cox, of Huckleberry Finn, the great novel, the seemingly novel of, of abolition and conscience, um, that is, oh, this book could only be written against a backdrop of absolute consensus about slavery, right? And so, like, at this point, the January 6th hearings, where you see the Liz Cheney heroism, comes against a absolute consensus and certainly a a popular consensus that Trump should have been thrown out after one term and, you know, that he was a disaster and he's in the rearview mirror. So it's an easier time to stand up to him, you know? And that is also, I think, somewhat interesting in terms of the thing you think about and, and write so well about, which is how time works in narrative. Because sometimes with Trump, I think that like a psychoanalysis patient, the thing that we're afraid of has already happened. You know, like you yeah. say, I don't think we're going to have a demagogue rise and take over the government. That seems unlikely. Well, that's what happened. And it's done. You know, the worst happened. We already had the pandemic. And, you know, so people keep telling me we're in the worst possible time. Well, when I was sitting there and Trump was in office, had a chance at getting voted in again, before January 6th, I said to myself, if he's ever voted out and we have a new president and we have a vaccine, I am not going to say it's the worst of times. That is brilliant. And I think you and I agree on that 100%. And I think that's kind of the interesting intellectual dissonance I experienced watching the first day of the hearings. Yeah. Because you go back and forth between the present and the past. You know, they show these live clips of the insurrection and it's completely terrifying. And there's like chaos and you hear these firsthand accounts of officers slipping in the blood of their own colleagues and you feel right there. And then all of a sudden those moments end and you come back to the presence. You realize it didn't work. It didn't happen. It is over. We got past it. We survived. Mm -hmm. We're stronger now because of that. And absolutely, we should get rid of Trump and he should be thrown in jail. But I think we shouldn't start to 
think to ourselves, well, this is a sign of how fragile our democracy mm, is. Right. I really think we should say to ourselves, no, actually, what's amazing about this is how everybody, even to your point, Mike Pence, <laughs> agreed that there is this real bright line here. And, and we have that in us um, to kind of stop these moments when really there's something that really is fundamentally un-American happening in the middle of America. Yeah, I think we're absolutely in agreement on that. But every now and then I just listen to someone I used to respect say very, very odd things about vaccines or about how, you know, Trump is doing some good in the world or whatever. And I just want to know what happened. You know, like, how did people get this way who were in 2015 sounding pretty normal and today are sounding much less normal? So here's why, to me, I don't think it's about facts. I think it's about curiosity. Mm. I mean, I think, I think what's happening is, is that some people have just made up their minds and they've just gone off into madness because they have these like weird theories and they're just not interested in listening to anything that's an alternative. Yeah. And, you know, the people I respect, I mean, I'm always open to talk to somebody who's an extreme fringe thinker, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll listen to them because you and I have that curiosity. And that's actually the more curiosity you have. A lot of times people will think that's dangerous because you always have an open mind. Yeah. But actually, the more open your mind is, the more likely you are to return to sanity because because, you know, that's how sanity works. The preponderance of evidence is there, you know, and you have to really be highly selective in your facts to come up with some of these totally deranged and bizarre ideas. Whereas, you know, you and I have opinions that can sustain almost all the facts. And that's why we're open to getting more. So to me, it's more about that mental trait of curiosity as opposed to being about really truth. You know, it's, it's more mm. about wondering and always believing that there might be more to learn. And conspiracy theories seem like that because they're always about this secret thing, but really they're about paranoia and anger and all these really negative, non-curious, empathetic emotions. Yeah. I love to imagine what other people believe. You know, just what would it be (laughs) like to believe that thing? What would it be like to not believe that, you know, I have to double my salary just for a second? You know, there must be people walking around not thinking currently, I need to double my salary. So I might be capable of not thinking that. And let's see where that gets me. You know, <laughs> that's that's amazing. That's beautiful. And, and you know, I think that's why you and I love literature and why the people who I love the most love literature, too, is because literature is all about entering into somebody else's head who's different from you, who's weird, who has a different perspective. And, you know, one of the things I just love the most to do is just read old, weird, different novels yeah. and just walk through those worlds. That's how the brain grows and sustains itself. And, you know, I do think there's a lot of people out there that are just kind of endlessly recycling their own inner narrative. And that's really the problem, not when narratives are true or false, but when you lose your desire to diversify your own mental narratives and get more stories in your head Mm -hmm. and branch out. And to the extent that I resist our current political climate, I feel like it's because it's just these same two narratives Mm -hmm. endlessly smashing against each other. Mm -hmm. At a certain extent, if you're a curious person, you are just done with both sides. It's sterile. Feels sterile. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you want to find that person out there who's like, there's got to be a third way or a fourth way or a fifth way or a sixth way. You know, and I think that's what so many members of the general public are seeking now is what's the story beyond? I mean, we already know the two existing narratives. What's the next one? Mm -hmm. I have two more questions for you. I think I'm also interested in the hearings, partly because I want this kind of documentation or glue of a story that will make sense to help me remember what happened that day. But I'm also interested because storytelling with digital material 
taken from all different sources is very, very difficult. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but, you know, you have a friend who gets into a romantic argument or something with someone, and it all seems to take place on social media. And it's just really hard to tell the story of heartbreak through, I was on Tinder and I got off Tinder because of him, and then he was back on Tinder, and then he blocked me on Instagram, and then I got a DM that I thought was from him, but I think he was catfishing. You know, it's just, it's not, it doesn't sound like Romeo and Juliet, right? It sounds like just weird. I can't follow this. Who was blocking who? Oh, his sister followed you and you took that as a sign. You know what I'm talking about. And in the January 6th hearings and also in the second impeachment, some of these storytellers were able to weave together cozy selfies by the insurrectionists, security cam images, body cam images, tweets, conversations on Gab and Discord and WhatsApp, and tell, like, with timestamps, a story of how this happened. And to me, that's an extraordinary feat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, anyone, I mean, I mean, first of all, I think your example of social media is totally fantastic. And I will say that anyone who's ever worked on a documentary has this problem, you know? I mean, it's just like huge amounts of footage. I remember when I first started working in LA, um, you know, there was this, it was when reality TV was blowing up Hmm. and they would just release teams with cameras into into people's houses to film everything. And then all these shows just crashed because no one could find the story in the footage. (laughs) Even though there was tons and tons of story there, they were just overwhelmed by the footage. And I think what has actually happened here, to be totally honest, is the story is so true that you could have told it with a billion different pieces of footage. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's that these guys are great storytellers. In fact, I'm going to be honest, Mm. I think a lot of it's not that great. But it's like, this is a story that you could almost not fail to tell because everywhere you look, there's another amazing piece of evidence that, that proves the story. And so really, it's just a case of, let me just pick five gems out of the treasury and just put them in a line and it doesn't matter which ones. We're going to take another break. When we return, the January 6th hearings have been compared to the Watergate hearings. But Angus says they much more strongly echo a story from 2,000 years ago. That's next. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. We're back with Angus Fletcher, story scientist and professor at The Ohio State University. And we're switching gears a little bit. So... Angus, you write beautifully, think in such a um, provocative way about ancient Rome and in particular Cicero's oration against Catiline. Tell me about that oration and its relevance to now. I'm just fascinated because essentially the same thing happened. So 63 BC, essentially, to kind of set the stage. Sure. You have this demagogue, Catiline, who decides he wants to overthrow the Roman Republic. And Cicero steps into the Senate and delivers essentially what is a kind of, you know, proto version of what's happening now in our hearings, in which he lays out the evidence that Catiline is a danger to the state. 
and tells everyone why it is that Catiline is guilty and must be opposed and must be thrown out. And this speech is so effective that Catiline himself capitulates, basically just like flees. Uh-huh. And also the speech then becomes taught for thousands and thousands of years to everyone. Mm. I mean, I learned it as a schoolboy. I mean, that was how I learned Latin was by reading this kind of Ciceronian speech. And so that's an example of how this kind of an occasion can produce a, a rhetoric that lives for a very long time and really has a huge impact and shapes the kind of future of democracy. So that's why it's a kind of interesting moment to me because in much more than the Watergate hearings, which I feel like were always heard as being the kind of precursor for this, I really think it's more Cicero speeches that are similar to what the committee's trying to do. Hmm. And it sounds like you think mostly failing. Yeah, I do think they're failing. I mean, I think that they're failing because, I mean, first of all, I would encourage everyone just to go read Cicero's speeches. They're really short. Yeah. And because I imagine you've seen A Few Good Men. Yeah, 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 of course. I actually love that movie. I'm alone and still liking it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I love it too. But of course, what's great about the movie is you get the bad guy to confess. Oh, yeah. You're goddamn right. I ordered the code red. Yes, exactly. I always think of that. And I think. You get so deep in his head, you know? And so, and right, I remember when, uh, what was it? I think Trump said when asked, you know, what he would do if the Russians came to him again to help him win an election. And he said something like, anyone would do well to take that call or I would take that call again. You're goddamn right. I ordered the code red. Just like, you know, I do anything to win. Yeah. Play to the ego. And for outlaws who want to be known for doing wild things, you could walk someone into that. And yeah, it's a totally wonderful kind of guilty pleasure of Aaron Sorkin writing in that speech. Yeah. And and the point is that Cicero actually did it. And that's what Catalina does. That's what Catalina does. He's like, yes, I, I ordered the code red. Yeah. And then he runs out of the Senate, you know. And I think that is an indication of the power of rhetoric that I think the committee is is not tapping into. Because I mm. think to, in order to make that level of impact, you don't just have to convince the people who already believe what you're saying. Because I think the committee is doing a good job of that. And I think the committee is doing a good job of making a case in a way that is convincing to you and me. I mean, you know, I have watched everything and thought it's a, an excellent case. And I agree completely with it. But I think to actually take that next step, you have to get into the head of the demagogue, of the insurrectionist, Mm, mm -hmm. and get them to actually be emotionally motivated to act badly in the way that you're saying that they're acting badly in public, you know? And I think that's the opportunity that we're not, we're not, we're not seeing that. And I think that's why these hearings are probably not going to be remembered by history in the same way. I've been thinking about Hamlet's mousetrap. When I saw that Ted Cruz wouldn't watch the hearings, right? Like a lot of Republicans refuse to watch even when they're on Fox News. I thought, well, look at that. Claudius doesn't want to watch the play that will catch his conscience, you know? It's another way to do an allegory and then make the person find it unbearable to witness. You know, I don't want to see this thing. Uh, I don't know how Hamlet persuaded Claudius to sit for that play even as long as he did, because clearly, you know, we're not seeing Donald Trump watch the hearings and cry out in pain and self-recognition, so. Yeah, I think the problem with Trump is he has a complete failure of empathy for anyone. So getting him to actually identify in that situation, right, is is the challenge. I mean, and I think that's the kind of sociopathic side of Trump and the reason that he seems so impervious to shame and all these other qualities, whereas even Ted Cruz, I think, as horrible a human being as he is, seems, to your point, have that capacity for guilt and shame and so not be able to watch it. And I bet you Trump is watching these hearings and having no emotional response whatsoever because he just kind of, 
you know, lacks that part of his head. Yeah, he is, if nothing else, like the Grinch, a wonderful, awful character. Maddeningly, I've spent way too much of my time um, trying to make sense of him as a character. Angus, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me on and thanks for humoring me. And I look forward to our next time chatting. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please give us those five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really, really does help other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Ella Fetter and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.